You see, the person has to give in and let go for the person, for the, for the lifeguard to be able to come in from behind them, put them up on the float, and carry them to safety. Sometimes with the float, you got to hold on. But if the lifeguard's coming out to you, you got to let go. That's the only way your life is going to be saved. We're coming in our series to the next part, the next letter in this series to seven churches in the book of Revelation, seven churches all in this area of Asia Minor. And today we come to a letter that Jesus spoke and, and sent through the Apostle John to the church in Pergamum. And Jesus spoke each of these letters because these local churches had a, a lesson they needed to learn, something they needed to, to grasp. And he, he commended them that if you, if you follow my words, then you'll be a conqueror and you'll be with me for eternity. And the lesson to the church at Pergamum was about something they needed to hold on to and something they needed to let go of, to hold on to and to let go. This morning, that's a lesson we all need to hear. What, what are you holding on to? What are you grasping with your life? What are you holding on to? What do you value and treasure? What, what are you holding on to? And is it good? Is it worth holding on to? Is what you're holding on to worth holding on to? Or are there some things that you need to let go of? Maybe even at the need of saving your own life. What do you need to hold on to and what do you need to let go of? If you read through this, uh, these seven letters, you'll notice a pattern. And many of them do some things well and some things not so well. And the church at Pergamum, Pergamum is one of those. So we start with what they are doing well, an example for us to follow. And the church at Pergamum can be our example in this. Hold on to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. If anything and of anything and everything that's out there, if, if anything's worth holding on to, or anyone is worth holding on to, it's Jesus. Above and before and after and uh, on top of everything else. Make sure you are holding on to Jesus. So that's what we read in the middle of verse 13 when Jesus tells them, You hold fast my name. Whatever else was going on in Pergamum, they were doing this well. They were willing to hold fast, to hold tightly to the name of Jesus. We, we were made for this. This is why we were created. We were created for the, to glorify the name, to lift up, exalt, to praise the name of Jesus. That is why we were made. And we, we, get, we kind of get our minds around what he says, hold fast to a name. We, we know how this, this kind of works. When we say things like they, they made a name for themselves, what we're saying is, is they have a, a reputation, they have a fame, they have, they have grown uh, into being known, right? So if you make uh, your name has to do with your reputation and who you are. And in our selfish desires but that our world encourages along, the name that we want to exalt most is our name, <laughs> We want our name to be special. We want to be recognized. We want a reputation as being good and famous and wealthy and whatever else, whatever other measures that we put before people. You know, the, the cliche is, I want my name in lights, you know, to be, to be on Hollywood, to be, to be out there. That's, you want, we want to exalt our own name. But the Bible tells us there is a much more valuable name, a name far more worthy of being exalted and praised. That's the name we should hold on to, the name of Jesus. He's the only one worth exalting. The only one worth building a platform. The only one worth getting famous is Jesus. And that's what we were created for. 1 Samuel 12, 22. I, I surveyed. You, you could do dozens and dozens of these references. I'm just going to give you two. Uh, 1 Samuel 12, 22 says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. 
when God preserves His people and protects His people and guides them, then people say, wow, God is good. When God is at work in and through His people, people, don't, uh, people who are outside don't turn and praise the church, they turn and praise God. That's the way it should be. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. He is the name that we are living for, and that is completely countercultural. We want to hold on to our name. We want to hold on to our fame and our renown and our reputation. The Bible says there's something far more valuable worth living for. Ever since the beginning, we've seen the danger in living for our name. Genesis chapter 11 is the story of the people who build the Tower of Babel. And uh, the people come together in, in Genesis 11 and says, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. They were about glorifying themselves. They're trying to get themselves to heaven. And I love that it says that God had to come down to see what they were doing. They were trying to get to heaven, <laughs> and they couldn't do it. God could barely even see it. It was so small. He's saying, it's not about exalting our name. You see, we didn't have to build a tower to heaven. God came from heaven to earth to be with us. The way we get uh, uh, all the acceptance and glory we're looking for isn't in our name. It's in knowing Jesus Christ. There's one name far more worthy than your name or my name or the name of Affinity Church or the name of your company or the name of any Fortune 500 business out there. It's the name of Jesus. His name is the only name that one day all, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth to this glorious name. Hold on to Jesus. He is the one who is truly the Son of God. When we claim His name, we believe in His name, we're saying we believe in who He is and what He has done. He is truly the Messiah, the Savior, the one who has come to earth and died in our place and resurrected to give us life. And by believing in that name, by exalting that name, we're saying He is the one who saves us. So hold fast to that name. In the church at Pergamum, that was especially challenging. You and I have our own temptations and struggles, but in Pergamum, it was going to cost them something to believe in the name, to hold fast to the name of Jesus. And we know to at least one person, it already had cost them something. We saw this last week in Smyrna that everybody else in that town seemed to be pretty well off, but the Christians were poor because they were being persecuted. They were being ostracized. And we saw that a, a couple decades later, a man named Polycarp, we know from outside the Bible, he was killed there in the city of Smyrna for being a Christian. Well, the persecution had ramped up sooner and earlier in Pergamum because already as of 90-something A.D. when this letter is written, a man named Antipas was killed for being a Christian. We read in verse 13, Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was, who was killed among you. It cost them something, and it cost this man his life to hold fast to the name of Jesus. In those days, the, the Roman rule included the Roman religion. And one of the ways that they practiced their, their religion was that the, the, the emperor, the Caesar, they declared them, that person, to be a, a son of God. And so they would say, Caesar is Lord. That was a part of their worship, part of the way that the, the uh, empire functioned. Everybody had to claim, Caesar is Lord. And so the Christians, knowing that was wrong and idolatrous, they couldn't say the name Caesar is Lord because he's not. Jesus is. But to claim the name, to hold fast to that name, was going to cost them something. 
and they're willing to do it anyway. Jesus commends them for holding fast to not denying the faith, even when things are challenging, even when things are hard. Pergamum was a, a prominent city, a big city. It had, had temples to all kinds of different uh, gods and goddesses of the, the Greek mytho- uh, Roman mythology, cults, the cult of Athena and Zeus and others were worshipped there. Uh, there was even a temple to a pagan god whose, whose image was the, the form of a serpent. And so that might be what he had in mind when he uh, tells them that he, he uh, acknowledges what they're going through. He says, when you're living where Satan's throne is or where Satan dwells. This is a tough, tough city that they are in. A simage, an image of Satan there is working against them. And yet the Christians were standing fast, holding firm to the name of Jesus. What name are you holding fast to? What are you holding on to at the, at the cost of and the risk of your own life? What would you put above your own life? Would you put the name of Jesus as more valuable than your life? There's a temptation that comes for us because claiming, going out, you can probably go wherever you want today and say Jesus is Lord and not fear it costing you your life. But there's a temptation that comes with that because since it doesn't cost us something to say that, we start to to undervalue how important that is, that Jesus is truly the Lord. We may not value it, and so we may be tempted to live for somebody else's name, usually ourself. So we can claim Jesus is Lord and yet spend our life and our energy and our effort promoting any other name, our name, a political candidate's name, a political party's name, a, a business name, a company, or whatever else you do, and say, this is what I'm really passionate about. Yeah, Jesus is Lord, at least on Sundays between 10.30 and 11.30, three out of four Sundays a week, uh, three or four Sundays a month, and, and, and the rest of the time, this is what I'm pursuing. Jesus is Lord, yeah, I'll say it over here, but this is what I'm passionate about. Now, we got to take a, a note from the church of Pergamum. If they were going to say Jesus is Lord, that meant this was the top priority. They're willing to put this before their own life and claim and hold fast to this name. The church of Pergamum was getting that right. They were holding on to Jesus. But not everything was good there. In fact, there were some major errors there. They weren't perfect, far from it. They were holding on to Jesus. They had, they had Jesus. They were holding firm to that. They were willing to risk, risk their lives but they were also holding on to some other things. They were holding fast to Jesus, but they are also trying to hold fast to the world. So we've got to learn from, from Pergamum's mistakes here. Yes, hold fast to Jesus, but let go of the world. Hold fast to Jesus, but let go of the world. When we try to hold on to Jesus and the world, what's going to happen is that eventually we're going to lose our grip on Jesus, that we don't really understand what it means to follow him. If we're trying to hold on to the world, we don't, mean, we don't know what it means to hold on to Jesus. He's, he's worth holding on to with all we've got and letting go of everything else. Revelation 2, 14 and 15, Jesus tells the church of Pergamum that in addition to holding on to him, they're holding on to what isn't good. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So he has a few things against them. Not just one, but a few. Thankfully, it's not everybody that's doing this, but there are some who are following false teachers. They're holding the name of Jesus, but they're also holding on to other things. So it talks about Balaam, who taught Balak. 
uh, and put a stumbling block there and it refers to uh, the people that are, that are teaching them, the Nicolaitans. These are potentially two different ways of talking about the same false teaching. So we don't know which was what group, but we, we know what they were teaching by these references here. Balak and Balaam are, are names that come way before this time, back in the book of Numbers. We can read about it in 22 to 25. Kids always love this because that story is the story where uh, God opens the mouth of a donkey and a donkey speaks on behalf of an angel of the Lord. So kids love that story. It's fascinating. Worth, worth to read today. Uh, 22 to 25, though, it's, it's, so this is a, a conflict in numbers between God's people and the people of Moab. And they had had so many fights over the years. And this was one of them. The king of, of Moab, ba Balak, hired a prophet named Balaam. And the goal was that Balaam would curse the people of God because Balak had seen how God had blessed the people of Israel and they were succeeding everywhere they went. So he thought, I'll get God to work. I'll twist God's arm to work against his own people. Well, of course, that didn't work. Balaam, this false prophet, gets where he can't say the curse. He, God convicts him and, and won't let him speak. So Balaam ends up blessing God's people three times. And so you read through that story and you think, oh, well, God's people made it out okay. But you go out down a few chapters later and you realize the stumble that the people of Israel fell into. Balaam couldn't curse Israel, so he decided instead maybe he would try to compromise Israel. What he did is he found a way to convince and manipulate, and we don't get all the backstory, but somehow they didn't, they didn't just bring down a, 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 an army <coughs> or excuse me, an army or a curse of God upon them. What he did is he just brought some women to them and said, hey, maybe you guys need some extra wives or whatever else. And so the people of Israel began to intermarry with these women from another nation that worshipped another god. And so then they, they led, were led astray and began to worship the god of the Moabites. And it came through seduction. It came through sexual immorality. So when God, Jesus sends this letter to the people of Pergamum, he says, you're falling into the same temptation that people back in Numbers did with Balak and Balaam. He's saying, you're letting your desire for these uh, women, we assume it's men to women, we don't know, I guess, but so you're, leading, you're letting your desire for sexual immorality lead your hearts astray. And it seems so strange to have these two things together, doesn't it? I mean, these people are commendable. They are holding on to Jesus. They are willing to risk their own lives, saying Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar, Caesar is Lord. I mean, they seem like incredible pillars for the faith. But these people are strong in the Lord. And yet, they are practicing sexual immorality. And you think, how can those two things go together? And yet, that trap happens all the time, doesn't it? The same, those two things go together so many times. The word here translated in ESV and most modern translations, sexual immorality, comes from a Greek word, uh, something like porneo, which is where we get the word for porn. And uh, the word for sexual immorality is a very general word. It just means any kind of, of sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. So um, please hear me that I, I know how, how common and sensitive and, and challenging uh, this area of our lives is for so many people. So please hear me that I, I want to be as gracious and loving and kind to you uh, wherever your life is, whatever your history is. And I want to tell you that whatever's in the past can be forgiven. And whatever you've been through, whatever relationships and struggles, you, you are never beyond the reach of God. You are never beyond the forgiveness of God. He can forgive you and He can heal you and He can build you up. And there's, there's grace upon grace. Jesus died 
He died so that you can be with him, no matter what you've been through. And at the same time, I, I also love you enough to tell you that if he died for it, he wants you to die to it. He wants you to leave it in the past and to move forward with him in holiness, in holiness. Marriage is a, is a covenant. It's a promise. And anytime we uh, participate in any kind of sexual activity outside of that covenant, that promise, the Bible calls that sexual immorality. Marriage is a covenant. It's not a, a consumer relationship. We know what a consumer relationship is. It's we, we go to somebody who's a, a vendor selling something, and we, we will keep this relationship, consumer and vendor, open as long as that vendor is giving me the best deal and the best price. But if, I, if somebody else comes along and has a, a better opportunity for a better price and I get more from it, then I'll switch vendors. And unfortunately, in dating and even today in marriage, our marriages, our relationships look more like vendor and consumer than two people in a covenant. That we're just in them as long as I'm getting the best product, the best benefit, the best bang for my buck. And then so many times our, 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 our sex lives get involved in that too. Sex was created to be a symbol of the covenant of marriage. Marriage says that a man and a woman are giving themselves to one another fully. The two become one. Two become one. And it's only within the safety of that covenant that we can experience that as it was intended to be. It is physically vulnerable. It's disclosure, uh, a full disclosure within the safety of that relationship. And it only works with integrity and safety in that relationship. Otherwise, it risks pulling everything apart. And this, this, the world is proving, the world is trying to do this other ways, but it, it's proving it doesn't work. The New York Times read an article back in 2012, a, a psychologist, not a Christian, wrote uh, the people, uh, called The Downside of Cohabitation. It pointed out that studies were showing that people who live together before marriage are actually more likely to divorce than those who don't. Because it's, it's popular in one sense, that, you know, we follow the logic, it makes sense to try out a relationship, to get to know somebody fully before marriage, but they're proving it, it doesn't actually work because what we do when we live together before marriage is we're saying, I'm testing this out to see if this works. I'm testing this out. That is a, a consumer relationship. It's not a covenant. And it's dangerous because if you enter a relationship that way, even if you take the right step and get married, it's hard to get that consumer mentality out of your relationship and to promise that this covenant is till death do us part and thick and thin no matter what? I'm going to stick it out. So because uh, that is how God intended it to be, anything outside of that is so dangerous, so dangerous, and so, so hard to, to work through. But God's word is powerful, and it heals, and it brings strength. And so know that whatever else is going on, if you hold on to Jesus and let go of ways that we're walking outside of God's will, he can heal, and he can work power in our lives. They mentioned sexual immorality is just one of the, of the ways that they're doing this here, but we can imagine just any number of ways that the people were led to compromise their faith. Today, that may show up in all kinds of ways where we think we're holding on to Jesus over here, so what's, with, what's wrong with holding on just a little bit of the world over here? You know, hey, I, I, I pray sometimes, and, I, and I'm in church more often than I'm not, so what's wrong with holding on to, you know, some foul language or some participation in parties or substances or, or uh, you know, taking in things online or TV or, or whatever else on the internet. You say, hey, I, I've got some Jesus, so I can hold on to these things, right? 
and we think, hey, what, what's wrong with a little fun? Or, or this, this doesn't really hurt anybody. What's, what's wrong with it? And I just, I just want to tell you that is a really low bar to set for your life, of, to ask the question of what's wrong with it. Let me give you a better question, a better bar to set. And I get this out of uh, Hebrews 12. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We, we've got a race to run. We've got a race to run. If you're holding on to Jesus, we are on an endurance marathon. And I tell you, if you're out for a run and you've got a long way to go, you're not looking to go around picking up 45-pound weights to take along with you. No, you're dropping any and everything you can because you've got to run. So better than asking the question, what's wrong with it, ask this question, will it help me run? Will it help me run? You could, you, we could justify just about any act if we really just try hard enough. We can come up with a good reason for it. But ask this question instead, is it helping me run with Jesus? Is it helping me cling to Jesus? If so, then hold on to it. If not, then let go of it. Even if people would say, hey, there's nothing really wrong with that. It's not helping me run. So I want to let it go. Hold on to Jesus and let go of the world. And verse 16 describes how that happens. It says it just a two-word sentence. It says, therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. Repentance is that letting go of saying, hey, this isn't helping me run. So I've got to let go of the things of the world. Repent, turn, change. D.A. Borders is a preacher who said about this. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of attitude, that leads to a change of actions. So we got to start with our mind. we got to recognize the world isn't good for us. We have to start with recognizing this doesn't help me run. And then it changes our attitude. We want to be passionate not about that thing, but about Jesus. And then let that lead to our actions, letting go of the world and holding on to Jesus. Like many of the seven letters, this one to Pergamum comes with a warning and a promise. The warning starts in verse 12, how Jesus started in verse 12. Jesus described himself as the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And we know from elsewhere in the scriptures, this is talking about the word of God, what we've just read. This is God's sword that is piercing out into the world. Ephesians 6 describes God's word as the sword of the spirit. It's described as, as, as two-edged because it's sharp and it's piercing. It doesn't just dull upon hitting. It goes deep. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So God's word is what pierces into our heart and shows us where we've got sin. And that hurts. But like a surgeon's knife, as it is hurting, it's healing. We want the surgeon to cut the cancer out, Please take the cancer out of me. Don't leave it in. I know it's going to hurt, but it is worth it. God's word is that way. It pierces. It reveals where we've got sin, and it can cut it out. But the other side of that is if God's word is piercing us and the sin is not removed, that same sword is a sword of judgment. He says in verse 16, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's saying if you don't repent, he can come and he can take them out completely. His word, his truth will come like a sword and it's either going to reveal sin and cut it off 
or he's going to cut off the church. Hear the sword, hear the word, and let it turn you from your sin. That's the warning. But listen to how great the reward is. If we can hold on to Jesus and let go of this world, we will be a conqueror with Christ. And those who are conquerors are His forever. Those who are conquerors are His forever. Verse 17 is a powerful description of that promise. And it may sound a little strange at first as I read this to you, uh, but like many things in Revelation, it's not actually as strange as maybe on your first reading you hear. Verse 17, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Hidden manna, uh, white stone, new name. I know that sounds strange, but this is, is a beautiful description of what our life is like with Him forever. That, that new name is really one of two ways that I, I would say really essentially make the same point, but this could be interpreted one of two names. The new name that we receive in heaven could be that we get a new name. That written on that stone is a, a new name for you. And, and I think the best way of understanding that, if that's what he means by this, is, is the way we use names all the time for people we love that are different than the names on their birth certificate, right? Like our daughter, our youngest daughter is Lydia, and from an early age, I don't know where exactly it came from, probably my wife, we started calling her Liddybug because we just thought it was cute, and we just think she's our little Liddybug, right? Well, now Lydia is 19 months old, and she has started using some words, and so the way she describes herself is Diddy. It comes out like Diddy. She's trying to say Lydia, and she said Diddy. Well, now Lois and Micah call her Diddy. And when they do that, it's silly and fun, but what they're saying, what's communicated in that, that family relationship is, you're my sister, and I know you, and I love you like people who are not a part of our family can't. Like, this is, this is our family's way of talking about our little girl. And that's a picture of us in heaven, that God has given us a name that, that only he knows that it builds this relationship that we have with him. That's one way of taking that new name, or the way it could be, because we don't really know. It could be a name for Jesus, but it's the same idea just in reverse, that we know him, and we have a name for him beyond what, what, what the rest of the world who doesn't know him is like. It's about our relationship with him. And I, I, probably, I think it's probably a new name for Jesus. 321, Revelation 321, Jesus says, my new name. And Revelation 22, 4 says, his name will be on their foreheads. Just like in Exodus, the, the, the priest would come into the temple and on his, his headdress and have a gold plate and it says, holy to the Lord. It's this idea of us in eternity with Christ, that, that we have this name for Jesus on our heads, and, and we know Him deeply. We have this special bond with Him that's a name deeper and, and greater than we could have imagined before. That name is talking about this relationship, that we know Jesus and He knows us because we are His forever. That's the beauty of this name. And the name is written on a stone. The stone is a symbol of something that's imperishable. It's not going away. This is a, a permanent relationship we have with Christ. That stone is, is white because it is a representation of purity. That be, Because of Christ's blood, what was shed on the cross, we don't come to God with our sin and our past. We come to us as people who have been forgiven and redeemed and restored. And the people who come into that relationship with Him, purified and redeemed, they get to partic participate in having the hidden manna. You know the story from the Old Testament of how God's people for 40 years, followed him through the desert as he led them. And every morning, six mornings a week, on the sixth morning they got double portion, but so they didn't have to gather on the Sabbath. But every morning 
The manna fell from heaven. When the dew evaporated, there was bread on the ground. They never went hungry. Not because they earned it. In fact, they were working their hardest to unearn it. But because they couldn't earn it, they didn't unearn it either. God gave them, graciously gave them the gift of bread every single day. Let me tell you, all of us, whether you work a full-time job or you take care of the home or whatever, we are all working to provide for our needs and probably the needs of somebody else, aren't we? And there is a, a, a joy and good thing that comes from our work, but there's an exhaustion that comes from that kind of work, isn't there? There's always something else to do. There's always one more bill to pay. As soon as you pay one month's mortgage, it seems like two weeks later it's the new month, isn't it? There's always another bill to pay. But in heaven, in this perfect relationship with God who knows you and loves you, there's a hidden manna. There's a provision that comes from God, and He takes care of your needs because He loves you and He cares for you. You are His forever if you believe in Him. That's the picture of the one who has the reward, the one who has conquered this world, being with Him forever. Isn't that worth letting go of some things for? Isn't it worth holding on to Jesus, to be one who conquers, to be one who has an eternity with Christ? It makes the sin of this world just seem foolish when for eternity we can be with Him. Hold, hold fast to Jesus and let go of this world. Let's pray. Father, we come to you humbled. Humbled that, that you would even speak to us. And humbled now that we've sat before your word because we see where that sword is poking in our lives. And we see this sin in our hearts. And as much as we don't want to, God, we pray that you would cut the sin out. Whatever that looks like, we plead that you would remove it. God, help us to let go of sin in this world and cling all the more to you. Father, we look to what you have promised for the days ahead. And God, we know that if it's just up to us holding on, we'll, we'll, never, we'll never have the strength for that. But God, we, we cling to your word where you tell us that for all who believe in you, God, you are holding us. We are in the Father's hand and nobody can pry us out. So God, as you're holding on to us, let us hold on to you. By faith, no matter the hardships, no matter the persecution, no matter the suffering, no matter the trial, God, may we hold on to you and nothing else. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, while the band leads us in our closing song of response, you're welcome to come and pray here at the altar or you come pray with me. I pray the Lord will lead you today that you'll follow Him in obedience and in faith. Let's stand and sing.
Amen. Amen. Henry, can I invite you up here? Yes. All right. I'm going to invite Henry up. You may stand up for just a minute. You can come on up here, I guess. Uh, you guys may know Henry Mitchell. We uh, twisted his arm into praying for our service today, so you'd hear his voice one other time before right now. But uh, Henry is going to come and join Infinity Church today and become uh, a member of Infinity Church. Uh, Henry's been worshiping with us for a number of months now, and uh, I got to hear his testimony in part a few other places, but we sat down a couple weeks ago, and uh, I, I still only a portion of it, I know. But man, what a powerful testimony, and uh, just a, a praise that God has been at work in his life. Uh, this man knows the Word of God. He knows the Word of God, and uh, God's doing great things through him. And so we're going to welcome him uh, the way we know how, which is praying over you praise and uh, thanking God uh, for sending you to us praise and that God would continue to I'm use your gifts. To be here. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Truly. Amen. Let's pray over Henry. God, I thank you for my brother Henry today and uh, the blessing it is uh, to be able to welcome him uh, as a brother in Christ uh, and as a member of Infinity Church. Lord, we pray uh, just a prayer of thanksgiving, thanking you uh, for your powerful, transformative work in his life. And we thank you for now using him as a light to so many people. God, I pray that you continue to provide for him and guide him and direct him and use him for the glory of your precious name. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. If thank you want to you, catch brother. Henry on the way out, you can welcome thank him. We thank you for joining us for worship today. Mm -hmm. 